It is the Healthy Families Podcast, and I'm your host, Jenny Hatch. Today I'm going to be playing the five-minute introductory speeches that were given yesterday on Capitol Hill by Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger. Their interactions with members of Congress were interesting to say the least, and at some points quite hilarious and funny, at others more serious. But we'll begin with Matt's excellent speech. Chairman Jordan, Ranking Member Plaskett, members of the Select Committee, thank you for having me today. My name is Matt Taibbi. I've been a reporter for 30 years uh, and a staunch advocate of the First Amendment. Much of that time was spent at Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, Ranking Member Plaskett, um, I'm not a so-called journalist. Uh, I've won the National Magazine Award, the I.F. Stone Award for Independent Journalism, and I've written 10 books including four New York Times, New York Times bestsellers. <laughs> uh, I'm now the editor of the online magazine Racket on the independent platform Substack. I'm here today because of a series of events that began late last year when I received a note from a source online. It read, are you interested in doing a deep dive into what censorship and manipulation was going on at Twitter? A week later, the first of what became known as the Twitter Files reports came out. To say these attracted intense public interest would be an understatement. My computer looked like a Vegas slot machine uh, as the, just the first tweet about the blockage of the Hunter Biden laptop story registered 143 million impressions and 30 million engagements. But it wasn't until a week after the first report, after Michael Schellenberger, Barry Weiss, and other researchers joined the search of the files, that we started to grasp the significance of this story. The original promise of the Internet was that it might democratize the exchange of information globally. A free Internet would overwhelm all attempts to control information flow, its very existence a threat to anti-democratic forms of government everywhere. What we found in the files was a sweeping effort to reverse that promise and use machine learning and other tools to turn the Internet into an instrument of censorship and social control. Unfortunately, our own government appears to be playing a lead role. We saw the first hints in communications between Twitter executives before the 2020 election when we read things like flag by DHS or please see attached report from FBI for potential misinformation. This would be attached to an Excel spreadsheet with a long list of names whose accounts were often suspended shortly after. Uh, again, Ranking Member Plaskett, I would note that the evidence of Twitter government relationship includes lists of tens of thousands of names on both the left and right. The people affected include Trump supporters, but also left-leaning sites like Consortium and Truthout, the leftist South American channel Telesaur, the Yellow Vest movement. That, in fact, is a key point of the Twitter files. That is neither a left nor right issue. Following the trail of communications between Twitter and the federal government across Tens of thousands of emails led to a series of revelations. Mr. Chairman, we summarized and submitted them to the committee in the form of a new Twitter file thread, which was also released to the public this morning. We learned Twitter, Facebook, Google, and other companies developed a formal system for taking in moderation requests from every corner of government, from the FBI, the DHS, the HHS, DOD, the Global Engagement Center at State, even the CIA. For every government agency scanning Twitter, there were perhaps 20 quasi-private entities doing the same thing, including Stanford's Election Integrity Partnership, 
NewsGuard, the Global Disinformation Index, and many others, many taxpayer-funded. A focus of this fast-growing network, as Mike noted, is making lists of people whose opinions, beliefs, associations, or sympathies are deemed misinformation, disinformation, or malinformation. That last term is just a euphemism for true but inconvenient. Undeniably, the making of such lists is a form of digital McCarthyism. Ordinary Americans are not just being reported to Twitter for deamplification or deplatforming, but the firms like PayPal, digital advertisers like Xander, and crowdfunding sites like GoFundMe. These companies can and do refuse service to law-abiding people and, and businesses whose only crime is falling afoul of a distant, faceless, unaccountable, algorithmic judge. As someone who grew up a traditional ACLU liberal, this mechanism for punishment and deprivation without due process is horrifying. Another troubling aspect is the role of the press, which should be the people's last line of defense in such cases. But instead of investigating these groups, journalists partnered with them. If Twitter declined to remove an account right away, government agencies and NGOs would call reporters for the New York Times, Washington Post, and other outlets who in turn would call Twitter, demanding to know why action had not yet been taken. Effectively, news media became an arm of a state-sponsored thought policing system. I'm running out of time, so I'll just sum up and say, um, it's just not possible to instantly arrive at truth. It is, it is however, possible becoming uh, technologically uh, possible to instantly define and enforce a political consensus online, which I believe is what we're looking at. This is a grave threat to people of all political persuasions. Uh, the First Amendment, an American population accustomed to the right to speak, is the best defense left against the censorship industrial complex. If the latter can knock over our first and most important constitutional guarantee, these groups will have no serious opponent left anywhere. If there's anything the Twitter files show, it's that we're in danger of losing this most precious right without which all democratic rights are impossible. Thank you for the opportunity to appear, and I'd be happy to answer any questions from the conservatives. So that was Matt Taibbi giving his opening statement on Capitol Hill during the Twitter files hearing. Uh, before I play Michael Schellenberger's opening speech, there was a bit of levity around a Texas congresswoman named Sylvia Martinez, who um, I think was having a senior moment while she was questioning Matt and Mike. Just as a little bit of backstory, she was asking who Barry Weiss was, and Barry Weiss is a journalist who worked at the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and quit the New York Times in disgust when they were trying to heavily edit her work, and went over to Substack and has now created a huge new media empire owned completely by her and her wife, and it's called the free press and it's a fabulous resource for all things journalistic. And it was obvious that this Congresswoman Martinez had never heard of Barry, didn't know the backstory and also was unaware that she likes girls because she talked about a threesome. Now it was a malaprop. I will give you that. It was a total malaprop. I think she meant a three person, journalistic endeavor. It was actually a multi-person endeavor with this Twitter file expose. We're up to like 17 drops. Some of them were done by, you know, like I think Matt's done three now, but 
be that as it may, here is Congresswoman Martinez for a little bit of humor. You're telling me you can't answer because it's your source. Well, then that only logical conclusion is that he is, in fact, your source. Well, you're free to conclude that. Well, sir, I just don't understand. You can't have it both ways, but let's move on. Cause well, no, he can't. He's a journalist. No, he can't because either Musk is the source and he can't talk about it, or Musk is not the source. And if Musk is not the source, then he can discuss No one has yielded. The gentlelady's out of order. You don't and get to speak. And she's out of order because he's recognized it. You're not recognizing my He has not said that. But he has said is he's not going to reveal his source. And the fact that Democrats are pressuring him to do so is such an honor. You're asking him about his conversations with Musk. The gentlelady has not yielded you time. You don't get to talk over I have not yielded time to anybody. I want to reclaim my time. And I would ask the chairman to give me back some of the time because of the interruption. Mr. Chairman, I'm asking you if you will give me the seconds that I lost. We will give you that 10 seconds. Thank In you. your answer, you also said that you were invited by a friend, Barry Weiss. My friend, Barry Weiss. So this friend works for Twitter, or what is what is her... Um... She's a journalist. Sir, I didn't ask you a question. I'm, I'm now asking Mr. Schillenberger a question. Please yes, ma'am. Barry Weiss is a journalist. I'm sorry, sir? She's a journalist. She's a journalist. So you work in concert with her? Um... Yeah. Do you know when she first uh, was contacted by Mr. Musk? I, I don't know. You don't know. So you're in this as a threesome? <laughs> um, there was many more people involved than that. This is Jenny Hat. So at that point, everybody in the congressional hearing was chuckling, and Matt and Mike were having a really hard time not busting out laughing. It was, it was a really funny moment. And it just blew up the internet today. I mean, the memes, the memes were so funny. And the Sylvia Martinez posted a video of her on her own Twitter wall saying she really, you know, sock it to those guys with her, with her words. And it was like, how tone deaf can you be to not realize that everybody is sort of laughing at you, lady? And the comments to her tweet were just, the ratio was like 95% heckling her. And um, I just think there's, you know, a bit of tone deafness there if she can't understand how uh, inappropriate and hilarious that whole exchange was. Here is Michael's Schellenberger, Michael Schellenberger's opening statement to the congressional hearing. Mr. Schellenberger, you are recognized for your opening statement. Chairman Jordan, Ranking Member Plaskett, members of the committee, thank you very much for inviting my testimony. In his 1961 farewell address, President Dwight Eisenhower warned of, quote, the acquisition of unwarranted influence by the military-industrial complex. Eisenhower feared that the size and power of the complex or cluster of government contractors in the Defense Department would, quote, endanger our liberties or democratic processes. How did he mean that? Through, quote, domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money. He feared public policy would become the captive of a scientific technological elite. Eisenhower's fears were well-founded. Today, American taxpayers are unwittingly financing the growth and power of a censorship industrial complex run by America's scientific and technological elite, which endangers our liberties and democracy. I'm grateful for this opportunity to offer this testimony and sound the alarm over the shocking and disturbing emergence of state-sponsored censorship in the United States of America. 
The Twitter files, state attorneys general lawsuits, and investigative reporters have revealed a large and growing network of government agencies, academic institutions, and non-governmental organizations that are actively censoring American citizens, often without their knowledge, on a range of issues. I do not know how much of the censorship is coordinated beyond what we have been able to document, and I will not speculate. I recognize that the law allows Facebook, Twitter, and other private companies to moderate content on their platforms. And I support the right of governments to communicate with the public, including to dispute inaccurate information. But government officials have been caught repeatedly pushing social media platforms to censor disfavored users and content. Often these acts of censorship threaten the legal protection social media companies need to exist, Section 230. If government officials are directing or facilitating such censorship, this one law professor, it raises serious First Amendment questions. It is axiomatic that the government cannot do indirectly what it is prohibited from doing directly. Moreover, we know that the U.S. government has funded organizations that pressure advertisers to boycott news media organizations and social media platforms that refuse to censor and or spread disinformation, including alleged conspiracy theories. The Stanford Internet Observatory, the University of Washington, the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, and Graphica have all inadequately disclosed ties to the Department of Defense, the CIA, and other intelligence agencies. They work with multiple U.S. government agencies to institutionalize censorship research and advocacy within dozens of other universities and think tanks. It is important to understand how these groups function. They are not publicly engaging with their opponents in an open exchange of ideas. They aren't asking for a national debate over the limits of the First Amendment. Rather, they are creating blacklists of disfavored people and then pressuring, cajoling, and demanding that social media platforms censor, deamplify, and even ban the people on those lists. The censorship industrial complex combines established methods of psychological manipulation, some developed by the U.S. military during the global war on terror, with highly sophisticated tools from computer science, including artificial intelligence. The complex's leaders are driven by the fear that the Internet and social media platforms empower populist, alternative, and fringe personalities and views which they regard as destabilizing. Federal government officials, agencies, and contractors have gone from fighting ISIS recruiters and Russian bots to censoring and deplatforming ordinary Americans and disfavored public figures. Importantly, the bar for bringing in military-grade government monitoring and speech-countering techniques has moved from, quote, countering terrorism to, quote, countering extremism to countering simple misinformation, otherwise known as being wrong on the Internet. The government no longer needs a predicate of calling you a terrorist or an extremist to deploy government resources to counter your political activity. The only predicate it needs is simply the assertion that the opinion you expressed on social media is wrong. These efforts extend to influencing and even directing conventional news media organizations. Since 1971, when the Washington Post and New York Times elected to publish classified Pentagon papers about the war in Vietnam, journalists have understood that we have a professional obligation to report on leaked documents whose contents are in the public interest. And yet in 2020, the Aspen Institute and Stanford Cyber Policy Center urged journalists to, quote, break the Pentagon Papers principle and not cover leaked, leaked information to prevent the spread of disinformation. Government-funded censors frequently invoke the prevention of real-world harm to justify their demands for censorship, but the censors define, farm, define harm far more expansively than the Supreme Court does. Increasingly, the censors say their goal is to restrict information that delegitimizes governmental, industrial, and news media organizations. That mandate is so sweeping that it could easily censor criticism from any part of the status quo, from elected officials to institutions to laws. Congress should immediately cut off 
funding to the censors and investigate their activities. It should mandate instant reporting of all conversations between social media executives, government employees, and government contractors concerning content moderation. And finally, Congress should limit the broad permission given to social media platforms to censor, deplatform, and spread propaganda. Thank you very much. So that was the end of Michael Schellenberger's opening statement. I would really encourage you who are listening to go and listen to the whole um, video of this exchange. It is so illustrative of where we are at in our culture. And I really think it will help you come at this uh, issue with very clear eyes about what's going on. As Michael talked about the slippery slope that we've just experienced in terms of what constitutes problematic speech, we are just at the tipping point of totalitarian everything. And so these men coming before Congress in this way is such an important step in exposing and then hopefully getting it all back. Now, at the header of the show, I talked about how a bank apparently is about to collapse. There's been a run on the bank in San Francisco. Here's David Sachs on Twitter. Where is Powell? Where is Yellen? Stop this crisis now. Announce that all depositors will be safe. Place SVP, SVPB, this is the top of the bank, with the top four bank. Do this before Monday open or there will be contagion and the crisis will spread. And then somebody accused him of having all of his money at SVP and he said, Kraft has no money at SVP. And then he said, if the Fed doesn't nip the bank run in the bud, regional banks will be decimated. And all that will be left is the biggest banks, you know, the too big to fail ones. This will not help the little guy. Now, he got a ton of blowback on these points. Uh, and how he responded was, um, I'm looking for the tweet. Oh, I can't find it. SVP was a top 20 A-rated FDIC insured bank. Do I believe regulators should protect deposits at a bank that they blessed? Yes, I do. Should regulators prevent systemic risk? Yes, they should. There's no contradiction unless you believe in protecting Ukraine, but not the U.S. economy. And then in an exchange with someone else, he said that uh, Yellen has been over in Ukraine. Because everybody's like, where's Yellen? And she's been over in Ukraine, not on hasn't come out publicly to talk about this issue. <clears throat> and uh, again, on Twitter, he's got this back and forth with people getting right in his business. Um, if somebody like David Sachs says, you know, this is a big deal. And on Monday, we could be looking at more banks collapsing. That's something we need to pay attention to. So uh, that's the end of my monologue. If anybody wants to join in the show, just go ahead and hit the comment button. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Gator, what a day. Hey, Jenny. Um, yeah, right, look, let's do the do it in reverse order. Do you know that um, that Yellen did two things that are essential and they are a broad parallel to what Bernanke did? So in 2017, she said that there would never be another financial crisis, quote, in our lifetimes. And literally days ago, she basically said that the banking system is resilient. <laughs> what did what did Bernanke say the week before the 2008 global financial crisis? 
everything's fine. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. Fucked. And um, the, the, so, you know, if I if I was you, um, then basically right now I would start withdrawing cash from banks and spreading them so that you don't have more that you don't exceed any FDIC deposit insurance limit in any one in any one institution. If if people don't do that in the light of this news, then they're stupid. Yeah, I agree. You know, my husband and I don't have any cash. We lost everything around the 2008 crisis, which for us ended up in us losing our home, all of our assets, and eventually he lost his job. And so uh, we had to start over seven years ago like we were newlyweds, and we had no car. We didn't even have a bed. It was the craziest thing to get to this point in our life and have no assets. And mm -hmm. um, just he managed to get a job. In a, he's old. You know, he's in his late 50s. Now he's when we started with the job and then he's in his sixties. And so for these past seven years, I've had the dark time of three and a half years, you know, um, barely surviving in my mind. And what can I do to create a hedge against this happening again, either to us as an individual family or a big global collapse. And so we've been preparing with um, just food and water. Mm. You know, I feel like that's been the best place to put our money. Whenever we had any extra money, I just put, you know, a couple cans of food away. And so I kind of feel like we're prepared for that side of it. But, you know, we don't have any assets to, to spread around to all the banks because there's no cash in this house. So what are you doing to prepare? Because I, I would imagine the collapse in America would affect affect the UK as well. Yeah, well, you should assume um, all any any all, all, all economies are tied to the US dollar. So the whole money supply paradigm in the UK and the and Europe is exactly the same because because it's all pegged. So what this contagion in the US will invariably affect um, Europe. I mean, Credit Suisse, um, a European bank, independently of this SV, SVIB issue, um, has is now the new Deutsche Bank, where its share price has now gone down to something like sub three dollars, the low the lowest it's ever been, um, because essentially it's got a ma major internal structural issues meanwhile you know deutsche bank has always been a since the crash has always been this unspoken about in public terms massive problem child because it's holding a load of derivative debt well i mean rising interest rates in a zombie economy post 2008 is basically going to kill and is killing loads and loads of companies so all of these things are just coming to a head now and yeah, um, they'll, it, will, it, will, it, will, it will it will likely accelerate. So, you know, I mean, if you can, you know, it's just a standard, it's the standard risk management process, isn't it? You basically have to spread your money, your money around. You try to pay off your house. You try to have a mixture of assets um, and, you know, um, basically spread, spread your bets, basically, um, you know. What's the chatter? What's the chatter over there in the UK? Just man on the street type stuff. Are you tuned into that? Not really. Um, you know, I, I can't say that what I people I talk to a representative in the sense that a lot of people I know are not are no more clued in than what they read about in the daily newspaper, which means that they don't know anything. Yeah. Um, and they don't believe you know, a lot of the technical explanations of like, if you ever try and explore something with somebody, they just don't have the knowledge. So they can't actually offer you anything back. They just accept, they listen to what you say. 
if you're going to talk about it. And then they just go, uh, don't know. Or they try to offer some half-baked opinion, which doesn't mean anything, right? So I don't often get into conversations about this with people. There's no point. I was surprised yeah. how many people are like this, though. Why are, the eggs, like, why, why are eggs so expensive is where they're at. Putin. <laughs> well, I don't know what to say. If you don't, Putin. If you don't and it I don't I don't know how to explain it. I just realized the the battery on my laptop's down to like 15 minutes. So we're going to have to hustle through this. Do you have any other points? Yeah, so um the Twitter stuff. I mean, we've already you and I are already on the same page in how we interpret the the general situation and also what the Democrat side showed and displayed yesterday in in terms of a combination of gaslighting, obfuscation, distraction, ad hominem um, smearing, uh, uh, credibility shutdown of the of the of the messengers. All of that stuff was in play, but also their their clear agendaized incompetence. The, a lot of those people were rolled in, willing to read essentially off a script um, that was prepared badly. Like the woman who didn't even know what Substack was. She doesn't have any analytical power. Of, of what the fuck is going on. She's literally been wheeled out of a grave into a seat and said, you, you, you need, you, we need a favor off you read these things out. That, well, that before, was... before you came on the show, I told how she on her Twitter bragged about, you know, yelling at these guys, put a little clip of her, you know, going at it with them. 95% mm. of the people on Twitter who commented on her video were like heckling the crap out mm. of her. It was so funny. Tone deaf, absolutely tone deaf. Look, I'm going to see if I can switch over to my phone, and then I won't have to worry about this thing cool. going dead when the battery dies. Let's see what happens. I've never done this before. So if I go away for a sec, I'll see if I can come back. Yeah, no problem. Uh, you know, before I do that, let me just bring Reggie in real quick. I've never talked to him before. And, um, Reggie, we can see what happens here. Um. Sorry, I'm on my laptop and I'm just not used to using this to do the show. So I will just invite you to speak and I'd love to hear what you say because just in case the show like goes away, I don't want you to, um, you know, not be able to talk. So it's not working. Reggie, are you able to get on? Well, do you want me to take the... Yeah, maybe if you drop down Gator, it'll it'll free it up, and then I can have him on. I'm concerned that if I shut this, my computer down, the show's just going to disappear. Hey, can you hear me okay? I can, yeah, and I've got like... Let me see how many minutes. I've got like 11 minutes left on my laptop, so if I all of a sudden go off, that's why. I, I'm sorry, I should have charged it before I started the show. What do you? What are your thoughts, okay. Reggie? Well, my thoughts are uh, most of what we're dealing with right now actually started with the, essentially the neoliberals taking over the Democratic Party in the United States when Bill Clinton came into office. And essentially, I remember the first time back in right around the end of the 1999 when I read about what neoliberalism was. And it just floored me because it didn't seem to be liberal in any way, shape, or form. It seemed to be pretty much the conservative bend on anything. And, it, well, we take big money and we do everything for the source of big money. And then every once in a while, we try to throw them a sop. 
yeah. or not. But that's the least important thing. The most important thing is that we make money. And making money wasn't even making money. That's the interesting thing. And that's what we're facing right now. Uh, there was a time that when making money mean that you actually produced a product, you took something and you took something here and you took some other things there and you took a number of things and put them together in a different format when that you actually had a product and the, the, uh, the value of that product was uh, seen by the, you know, the marketplace and the marketplace paid for that product and and you achieve the profit uh, based on the cost of the resources that you know you had to do, and so it was a real constructive process. It was a real, you know, it was a real addition, a value, a, a true value coming out of it. But one of the other problems that we had with neoliberalism is going on now is when you start making your money by driving a price up with no change in asset, actual, real asset change. And then, okay, now it's worth more because people got to pay more for it. And then you have a lot of people that are taking a percentage that work on, okay, let me get in here really early. So I'll take a percentage. Now, all that supposed money making, and it is money and money on paper, is not adding one single more bit of value to the actual product that's being delivered. And so that's not really producing or creating, you know, that that's not manufacturing that's not creating so yeah, part of what neoliberalism did is they started realizing okay let's take uh labor and make it a, a just like any other commodity and we can buy and sell it and well it's cheaper overseas so let's start farming things out well we'll send our call centers out there okay our tech support out there our manufacturing out there and you do this all along and it all goes somewhere else so some third world countries, which, you know, I think everybody ought to be able to do well, including there, you know, since they have a lot lower cost in labor, they end up with some, they work really hard and they do it, but essentially you suck a large portion out of the, what we, uh, used to be known as the first world, that's us, you know, Britain, all the developed countries. And so all these type of jobs that were related to working class people, the blue collar people, you got blue collar and white collar, blue collar, typically the people who sweat for a living, white collar is people who, you know, uh, you know, engineers, lawyers, doctors, things like that, but they're still productive people. And then of course you got the, man the management class who make their money by managing. Well, the management class all made money on this because essentially they could uh, take a higher profit margin by eliminating and cutting out and farming the jobs out and cutting out the, the cost that went down to the vast majority of the people. So the bottom line is on this is that essentially it acted like a money pump where all the money got pumped up to the very top end. And each time we had a collapse, like the, the, the SNL scandals in the late, what was it, late 80s? Yeah, the savings and loan. About 2000, yeah, savings and loan, right, SNL. And, uh, you know, and well, the interesting thing is during the SNL thing where it was a, a big scandal and there were some laws broken, there were a number of people that went to jail. And I know there's some new laws came out and, and the new laws that actually had real penalties. And so then we had another crash was the dot com crash that happened after the, you know, essentially the, the Y2K, you know, it was also kind of a little bit related to the, 
you know, the, the military industrial complex or the twin. I remember it. Well, my husband worked yeah, in so a that's sector. The one that, that's the one that at that point in my life, I was uh, already, I was a millionaire in that I had a large company and was building lots of stuff. Okay. And doing a lot of things. And I was at on my, my target figure retiring at 45. It's just about ready to do it, but it essentially destroyed almost all my money. I kept on working and paid back a bunch of bills. But the, what happened during that was uh, there was a lot of inflated prices in the dot-coms. I, I remember discussing this with my partner. It says everybody put a dot-com on their name and had all these other people who thought it was real money, real value. And so I watch a lot of these different stocks go up because of the perceived value versus the actual asset value, real things and you know and that's kind of a funny thing is a lot of times the stock market doesn't reflect the actual production this never has well my husband was working for a company that um he called it a death march WorldCom collapse was also part of that big thing that happened that you know the y2k the WorldCom collapse 2002, I was expecting our fifth baby, and we went through that whole pregnancy wondering if we'd have health care or a job. And my husband said his coworkers, they would have this death march where they'd be called into the manager's office, and then they'd come out with this forlorn look on their face. And this was happening to two or three people a week. And we went through that whole year wondering if we were going to have a job. And because his was an essential job, it had to be done. He was able to hold on to it. Labor take less money. That's the thing that pisses me off the most. Okay. During that tight time, the, the, you know, the savings loan, you could blame it on the savings and loan thing. Okay. Well, during the one in 2002, that's where they told all the people doing manufacturing and work. They'd already started forming neoliberalism, already started offshoring a lot of the work, but that's also when they use that. Well, for us to stay in business, all everybody in labor has got to take a cut in wages and almost everybody did. Yep. Says we gotta, you know, we gotta pull together and do this. Well, as soon as they did, they became profitable. And lo and behold, profits came in. But guess what? Wages never went up for nobody. They gave bigger and larger bonuses, you know, the further up the food chain, you know, they had a whole lot more payment. You know, they did stock buybacks. You know, this this thing about, oh yeah, if we all work together. You know, it'll, it'll, uh, you know, uh, high tide raises all ship, you know, all boats, all ships. No, it don't. Okay. Hey, I just switched over to my phone from my laptop and I'm still here. I'm so excited. Okay. So go ahead. Keep talking. Yeah. Well, you don't have as much, uh, echoing background to your microphone. It's not quite as good, but it's, uh, it's easily understood. So this whole thing happened and it was, you know, I've been watching this each time it goes up. Then, well, that one there put me back into poverty where I had to work my ass off. No, What's I probably your field? Just went, uh, I'm I'm telecom. Right now, okay. I'm, I'm a telecom engineer for Nevada Energy. Well, and see, my husband so worked. I, He's an engineer at EDS, and their client was at the time Neodata, which was all telecom stuff, and they were outsourcing oh, really? to India everything. Well, uh, they can't outsource the. You know, we we're right now. <laughs> I, well, my big forte, uh, it started out as mostly wireless and wireless communication. So I built out the first original cell sites and the cell systems. And that's always, you know, been a production, even though the people working in that area, the actual people working get very little, even though the CEO at T-Mobile gets like fantastic payment, you know, <laughs> but uh, still. 
no, uh, but my company was building out communications facilities and doing microwave and fiber links and cell sites. And things Were like you ever able to rebuild your company thing. back to what it was? No, uh, I, I held along for quite a while. And then as it, you know, I, it, I paid off about a million dollars worth of debts and sold off property and did everything. But at that time I was also smart because I started, I bought a piece of property in, down in the tropics in the Republic of Panama. And, you know, that's where I have history and family and things like that. So I went back and did that because I, you know, the thing is, I, I really don't like winter much. You know, snow ought to be in a snow cone, ice ought to be in a drink. It's my attitude. I'd like to be able to have that beautiful weather all the time. And so what I did is I'd start playing this little, it wasn't a game. So I'd take whenever I had some assets. So I was able to buy a piece of property at a really good price, at a good value, took some risks, and I got it. And then I started every time I could, usually during the middle of the winter time. Breaking up. That during the middle of the winter time, uh, I'd go down there and I'd work on it. And then slowly but surely I built it. You know, and now I'm getting ready to retire with my wife and kids, even though I'm still working for Nevada Energy. And, you know, it's hard to give up the money, to go over to, you know, the tropical paradise type thing. But still, that's what what I was getting at. We also, now we go over to the 2008. Now, 2008 just infuriates me. Uh, yeah. I was able to get rid of some of my stuff because I saw it coming. I saw the whole thing coming because I saw the whole bubble on the real estate and everything else and the games they were playing. And I preached to all my brothers and sisters, you need to, if you got stock, you need to dump it right goddamn now because it's going to crash. All this stuff is going to crash. Oh, and I got rid of mine just like a couple of weeks before. And I didn't have a whole bunch by then. I had a little bit. It was inherited because I didn't have any money. But I was able to come out with a whole skin. I was unpopular after that at family get-togethers because when they brought up how much money they lost and I'd sit there, I told you so, they'd, you know, they'd just get angry at me. You know, nobody likes to be told I told you so. But uh, still, that was nothing but greed because not a single person went to jail. They all got bailed out and they got bonuses. And then I the should've... mother, MF or, you know, Obama, all these people got dumped out of their houses. And so and the, so the same companies that created this whole thing bought them back on dimes on a dollar, you know, on the slow price, and which, of course, they pumped back up. And, well, and not I think a single one of them. They, they didn't even lose their damn jobs. They, I on know. top of I that, think to, they kept their jobs. I think 2008 laid, the, 2008 laid the foundation for everything we're seeing right now. And well, the bitch they was they had violated laws in savings and loan they made the laws and the savings alone says, well, next time we can get more of these F, you know, these assholes. So we'll make these laws. Well, them laws were in place. And there was, I think the last time I looked at it, there's about 5,000 people that were in violations of them laws. They were in violation and not a single, they didn't even lose their jobs. And they all benefited from it and everybody else. And that's what's going on right now. You know, they keep on, and it started with, Essentially, there's a group of people that keep on lying. They skim off the top. And as long as they pay off each other, these are people that don't really work for a living. And they do is they make their money off the work of other people. And that's still going on. Why are we in the Ukraine spending $100, you know, $100 billion to a corrupt country that essentially has been playing little games back and forth with another country? You know, they tell me a, tell me a single war that we did that was just that where we, when we left, things were better other than spending billions or trillions of dollars. I know. 
Well, thank you, Reggie, so much for sharing your thoughts. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Oh, my thoughts are there is a way. What? The only way we can do it is both parties are the same right now. Okay, the Democrats have got much worse just recently because they really, you know, in the main subject, that's what attracted me. What they did, you know, that the Twitter files were just, I consider that it's been presented to them that the government has come in and, and, and it's violating the First and the Fourth Amendment brazenly and doing all this. And the people that used to claim to be protecting us in anti-war and everything else are the ones that are all for this. I know. Did you know that they said in one of the files that they wanted to pen, they wanted to put people in a holding, holding place, pen us up if we were inappropriately sharing content on the internet? You know, they they couldn't come out and say, you know, quite, oh, we'll put them in jail or we'll arrest them. You just want to pin them off. You just use another name. Well, <laughs> they, they have a name for that. What do I they call that? Uh, enhanced those... interrogation, interrogation techniques. That's not or, torture. I, I just think of, you know, the old re-education camps that were in China and Russia. You know, we're just going to send you to a camp for a little while where you can kind of hang out with the other yeah. problematic well, people. We didn't, Maybe we'll yeah, let we you didn't grow execute some them. We just euthanized them. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. a that's a war on poverty. You round up all the poor people and you you like eliminate them. Well, it's, problem solved. I just think we all kind of need to buckle up. That next week could be, you know, it's, it'll be interesting to see how fast it goes because people who are economic uh, economists are on Twitter they're saying this thing is going to go fast, like Twitter fast. And this this is the point of the spear. You know, is this one bank just like okay? There's a run on that bank. What's going to yeah. happen on Monday morning? It doesn't look I didn't, good. I never trusted a bank. I put it all, I got my real estate that I built. And I, because every time I've seen it, anybody who, who was invested in it, who didn't get out, took a bath. Yeah. And you have to do that with real assets. That's why I started the whole thing talking about real things produced. Right. Things, tangible things. All this other stuff is just monopoly money. It is. Well, thank you okay. so much for I'll, participating. I, mean, I need uh, to run. But sure. um, I do too. I had my uh, wife run me. She she don't like me to not answer. Well, I so appreciate you participating on the show tonight, and I hope you have a great day. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye.